Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good Shabbos. Mazel Tov. In the world of rabbis and cantors, and I, I have no doubt this is true for other clergy throughout the world, May and June are the beginning of wedding season. The snows of winter have passed, the rains of spring have gone, and we have sunshine and clear skies. And if it wasn't proof enough, Exhibit A, we had an off-reef this morning just to prove the point. Now, I'm the rabbi of a large congregation, and I also have an email account, which means that I get lots of jokes sent to me by my congregants. Most of them I cannot repeat, which defeats the entire purpose of sending them to me. Just remember that. But there are a few that do indeed pass muster, And this one was sent to me recently by the father of a bride-to-be. A newly married couple arrives by taxi at their honeymoon hotel. The bride leans over across the groom as the taxi pulls to a stop and she whispers, Sweetheart, I don't want people to realize that we are newlyweds. I want them to think that we have been married for many years. And he looks at her and says, Are you sure that you can carry both suitcases by yourself? (laughs) Which reminds us just how different it is the things that we dream about and what they actually become. But weddings are scripted to be fairy tale moments. Black ties and long gowns, state affair-like meals, speeches and music all work together to make an evening that is magical and otherworldly. Jewish tradition even records an ancient custom still seen today in one particular element of the wedding ceremony. In early Jewish history, individuals close to the bride and groom were called upon as shoshpanim, as courtiers, people who would spend the week prior to the wedding with either the bride or groom. Their week would be filled with the chores of tending to errands, and generally escorting the future betrothed throughout the week. It's important to note that this custom is far from extinct. In the Orthodox community today, it is considered a great honor to be enlisted as a shoshbein to either bride or groom. Wherever the bride and groom would go, whatever they needed looked after, these escorts would be there to do it for them. And the processions seen today in weddings, the choosing of a best man or a maid of honor, are all remnants of this ancient practice. The reason for them is to make both bride and groom feel royal. Just as neither king nor queen, prince or princess, ever leave without a train of people accompanying them, we do the same for the couple. For as they step into this moment, we want them to believe that their new responsibilities will transform them into better. Better lives, better people, better souls. Because in the Jewish matrix, better is only possible through a call to a responsible life of heeding the effort to build and live, which is true for people, and it is true for a people. You see, in the late 19th century, when Zionism began to take its hold in European Jewry, the world was a very different place than where we live in. There were no phones and no radios. There were no planes and no cars. Photography was a cumbersome niche craft, 
which all means that people's lives were filled with more imagination than reality. They had to dream what they thought a distant land or a foreign people might look like. So when those persecuted European Jews began to seriously think of leaving the place that had been their home for more than 1,500 years, they had no idea of what Palestine was actually like. To get there was first a carriage to a train, and then a train to a boat, and then a boat ride that lasted many, many weeks, if not months. We who see pictures of Israel every day. The wallpaper on my iPhone is a picture that I took from my hotel balcony in in a lot this past winter. We can't even begin to imagine what they imagined Israel to be. Because their images were from the Bible. Augmented by the paintings of medieval and Renaissance artists who imagined Israel not as a place but as an idea. But when the time had come to make the idea a reality, those early Zionists decided to send a delegation to Palestine to robot back on the condition of the land. And weeks after arriving, the telegraph finally arrived back in Europe saying that the bride is beautiful, but she is married to another man. Decades later, their reply would be twisted to mean that then Palestine belonged to another people. But the deeper truth of what they said implies not modern political arguments looking to delegitimize the state of Israel. It implies something about us as people, as humans, generally. Because like those early Zionists, we heard of the Israelites finally arriving to the borders of the land of Israel this morning after winding their way from slavery in Egypt through the parted seas in the Sinai Desert, they find themselves on the cusp of entering into their promised land. But not knowing what it will be like, they approach Moses to send 12 spies, one from each of the tribes, and Moses said to them, go up there in the Negev and into the hill country to see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell within it strong or weak? Few or many? Is the country in which they dwell in good or bad? Are the towns they dwell in, are they open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? The 12 spies sent out are leaders of their tribes, people of renown and designation. They had to search out the goodness of a land that God had already promised. It was a land of promise. A land flowing with milk and honey, a land of trees and life, of water and fertility, a land that would be their home. And throughout the long body of rabbinic commentary, over thousands of years, they all come back to the same question. Why did they send out the spies? Why didn't they just go in? Because it was promised by God. And the answer to that question answers all of the questions because the unhappy ending follows their return to the base camp. After 40 days and 40 nights of touring the land, they bring their report. Yes, they say, the land is good, but but the land is hard. The cities are fortresses. The inhabitants are mighty. It is greater than us. Which leads the ancient rabbis to have said that we see the world not as it is, but as we are. 
our next step is to see this deeper. Because fresh from their exodus from Egypt, those ancient Israelites obviously believed life would be a series of simple binary choices. That either life will be good or bad. That it fits or it doesn't fit. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't, lose it. Maybe of all the horrible things that slavery does, among the worst is that it destroys life's fundamental truth. Because slavery leaves the slave with the idea of a simple life. One of the painful truths of becoming an adult is realizing just how complicated life can be of the many, many outcomes that life can give birth to. If you think about your relationships, we start realizing that the most satisfying and lasting ones tend to also be the ones that are the most complicated. They're the ones with the stories of disappointment and heartache, but also the ones with stories of joy, love, and support. Because the strength of our loving relationships not only comes from our mutual happiness, but also from our shared pain of all that we've gone through and overcome. As I often tell young couples, when you see a smiling married couple celebrating their 30th wedding anniversary, you can be sure that they're not laughing about all the good times they had together. They're laughing at all the craziness that they've been through and survived. These are the complex stories that are built over time, histories that are far from simple. And that's the richness of those relationships, but it takes depth and maturity to understand that. When the Israelites had to spy out the land, when there is even a shading of something not perfect to them, it became all bad. When something didn't seem ideal, suddenly it was no longer good. When it didn't fit the picture of what they hoped for, it was wrong. A careful look at our own lives can see how this plays out. Before us lies the great hope of many promised lands, the spouse we hope for and choose, the children we raise, the work we engage. And when it doesn't unfold exactly the way we wish, what do you do? Hollywood endings are only for movies. And simple narratives work only in children's stories. As any Israeli cab driver will tell you if you ask, Chaim Zelo Picnic, life is not a picnic. And if you're waiting for one to arrive, you're going to be waiting a very long time. The honest truth is, is that your life offers not conclusions, but chances. Your life is a series of opportunities to see what might be if you're prepared to explore it and work for it. Your life is not given, but shaped and made. Those first Israelites failed because they didn't learn that. The second time in the hands of the early Zionists, 2,000 years of exile had taught them well. They would have to work for the land. It wasn't coming to them on a silver platter. But seen in another way, we learn this at the end of a Jewish wedding. As the Shoshpanim, as the escorts leave their side, as the last of the blessings have been sung, as the final words of the rabbi are given, a glass is placed beneath the foot of the groom, and he is told to break it. And of all the interpretations for this tradition, this one seems truest in my mind. As the ceremony concludes, so does the fairy tale. The glass is broken to remind bride and groom that life will not be perfect. 
which isn't to say that it won't be beautiful. It is to say that we believe what the Kotzka Rebbe said is indeed true, that the only whole heart is a broken one, that only a heart with broken pieces is a feeling heart, that our souls and hearts are not clear panes of glass, but a kaleidoscope of broken pieces that make it brilliant, which is also to say that once it's broken, that's exactly the moment that it becomes beautiful. Shabbat Shalom.